Well, I do appreciate all the work people put in to make Sunday happen. Not only the, all the praise teams, but uh, the people doing the nursery, the sound booth, the greeters, and uh, everyone else. The food uh, are, is a really blessing uh, that people help out to do that. And um, so I just want to thank for all the workers uh, that just serve the Lord. It's a great uh, honor to me to see that all work out. So uh, this morning, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're still looking at laboring for the supremacy of Christ, looking at the conflict. And as you turn there, let me have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, I thank you for the word of God, and I thank you, Lord, that once we understand what you have done and what we have, the only thing we could do is thank you. That's it. Not complain, not grumble, but just be thankful. Lord, I pray this passage of Scripture will help us to understand that this morning, and that your honor and glory and the name of Christ will be exalted to his supreme place where he belongs because that's where scripture puts him. And Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves under his mighty hand that you may use us when you see fit to do your will and work. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. It has been said that all religions are the same and only seemingly different. In truth, Christianity is profoundly different from every other religion because every other religion basically says you can save yourself. However else they go about it, that's pretty much what they all conclude. Do enough good deeds, please a god or gods or a force or yourself, and you can earn salvation. The Bible, though, emphatically teaches the opposite. No one can earn salvation because God's standard is perfection. Even our good works are saturated with our sin. Our motives and our thoughts are not perfectly pure and exalt, God-exalting. In fact, Isaiah says they're filthy rags before a holy God. Every person has fallen short of God's standard of perfection. Also, we cannot fathom the holiness, justice, and infinite nature of God we have sinned against. So we really can't comprehend the seriousness of our sin. For example, if you lied to a child, there are little consequences. If you lie to your spouse, the consequences increase. If you lie to the government, jail awaits. Same sin, different consequences because of whom the sin is sinned against. Like Adam and Eve, just one sin justifies our separation from a perfect God who won't tolerate sin at all in his holy presence. All other religions are man trying to grasp at truth and salvation. However, Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Jesus, the last Adam, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay a perfect, infinite sacrifice that we could have never paid. And in doing so, he defeated Satan and death, and he rose from the grave, defeating Satan and death. No other religion has an empty tomb, none. No, Christianity is, isn't like other religions. 
man's word and religion say do. God's word says done in Christ. There's really only two religions in the world if you want to categorize it like that, right? There's the religion of works. I do this to earn my salvation. And then there's a religion of free grace. What God has done to save me, and I believe that by faith, trusting, repenting of my sin, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So then, we will experience conflict as Christians because we are Christians. And this conflict we entered will be in the area of doctrine and practice. Doctrine and practice go together. You can't have one without the other in real salvation. We will learn what is true and we will learn what is not true. And the Lord wants you to have assurance that Christ is God. And he is sufficient to completely save. He wants you to have assurance of your salvation in Christ. He wants you to be assured that Jesus will completely and totally take care of you. Now and forever. He wants you to know the roadmap to a stable, healthy, and thankful Christian life. Now, so far in our text, in chapter 2, we have looked at the warfare. And if you notice in verse number 1, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for, tho for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. The Apostle Paul is sharing with us the struggle that he had within his own heart for people he never met, but these Jews and Gentiles, converts, are now in Christ, so he struggled for them in prayer so that they would be firm in their faith. What was he wrestling with? He was wrestling with things that will hinder reaching the goal to be firmly established in the faith and re to remain steadfast the whole of one's Christian life. And already we know that the most effective antidote to any heresy is pro the proclamation of Christ himself, the cogent proof of Christ's absolute supremacy and exclusivity. There's no other way. Truth is worth fighting for no matter what cost or how much it would make us unpopular. So the Apostle Paul, first of all, is deeply concerned with these people that he is writing to. And so, secondly, we saw the welfare that Paul had for them. It says in verse number two, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. This encouragement will not come naturally from within them, but must come outside of themselves. Of course, here... The encouragement is coming from the Apostle Paul along with his writing ministry that will encourage them and the Holy Spirit of God now that indwells them will encourage them further in the faith. And the sphere of this, this knitting together is the sphere of love. It says further in verse number two that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love, that the church body interlocked like a Knitted blanket. And how, how does that happen? Because God brings together the most divided people groups from the most diverse backgrounds and worldviews and bring the, brings them into the church and makes them one united body. Why? Because all ethnic groups from all tribes and nations become one person when they come to Christ in repentance and faith. And so the Colossians and the Laodicean 
congregations comprised of Jews and Gentiles had already been demonstrating Christian love, which is very unusual for people so completely different. And that's why Epaphras writes back or, or tells Paul in his report, listen, these people right there that got saved and believed the gospel, he informed them that, that had, they had love in the spirit. There was love abounding in that, those congregations. Love is always an overwhelming adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it always, always produces a genuine well-being of others and gives really evidence of real conversion. So it is, it is worth fighting for the unity of believers, which is knit together in love, because love is a weapon for victory. That we may be strong together in warfare. Also, this love and this, the goals of being rooted and grounded in the faith is also keeping what we have, not giving it away. In verse number two, it says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. And of course, Scripture is not referring to uh, physical, material wealth. It is referring to the wealth and riches we have as believers in Christ, which consists of conviction of the assured understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And what, what was that? What is that mystery that was kept a mystery in the past but now unveiled? Well, we already saw it. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ alone is the source of every conceivable bit of spiritual knowledge worth keeping and living for and having, that all the barriers are down so whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile, saints alike are fellow heirs now in Christ and because the Spirit of God is in them. And then it further says in verse number 2 and 3, in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. It is in Christ that all the treasure of divine wisdom and knowledge have been stored up in hiding formally, but now display to those who have come to know Christ Jesus, that Christ alone is the source of scriptural knowledge worth having and fighting to keep, that this knowledge is the greatest wealth that we'll ever obtain or have on this side of eternity. So I said last time, that's a Christological high point. No one could take that away from us. But in some way, we can walk away from it or give it away. Christ is our treasure. And anyone who comes to know Jesus Christ by faith can draw from his store of wisdom and knowledge that has been given to us. So it is worth fighting for the treasure of truth because the truth about Christ is a sharp weapon for victory. Holding to it will make us mighty in warfare. So what do we have? We have unity, unifying love as a weapon for victory in warfare. We have keeping the treasure of truth about Christ is also a weapon for victory. And they also give us discernment, which gives us protection. Protection from what? From false teaching. So now we are armed for battle. And once we are confident we have this treasure in Christ, once we have this high Christology, the benefits of wisdom and knowledge have a direct practical purpose for us. And what is that? That's what we're looking at today. In verse number 4 to verse 7, verse number 4, the warning. The unity of doctrine, the unity of love, the treasure of Christ as our possessions will keep 
you and me from being deceived. So here's an exhortative warning. Notice in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So all that went before. So you and I can stand strong. We're ready for warfare now. Bring it on. Because I know the truth. I know who my Savior is. I know the wealth I have. And I'm not giving that away for no one. See, the word here, delude, in this context, has the meaning of twisting the truth or enticing into error, to deceive by false reasoning or drawing erroneous conclusions, arguments that sound reasonable, or even popular rhetoric that get people to accept conclusions about religion and spiritual truth that are absolutely wrong because they have nothing to test it with. They have to test it with the word of God. See, there are many places today where falsehood and disinformation are being disseminated. You have all kinds of media outlets, YouTube and Twitter and podcasts and Facebook and multimedia presentations and news networks and, yes, even churches. See, Satan's arguments sound plausible. Just what he presented to Eve. See, they, they convince someone against what has already been said and revealed by God. And what's Satan's old method? Has God really said that? That's it. That's his twist of truth. Matter of fact, that's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, what's amazing about that is the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit, uh, fruit of the, the tree of, in the middle of the garden, God says, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, she had it right. But then it says this in verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you'll surely not die. What is he doing? He's casting that doubt on what? Truth. That's all it takes. Just a little twist. A little bit truth with some deception and lies, and that's it. That's all it takes. In fact, if you mix deception with truth, it's no longer truth. It just takes a small twist of the truth in order to distort what God had said and deceive someone. So false teachers' main flaw was their failure to rightly exalt Christ and submit to him as the only Savior and Lord. And the false teacher here in the Colossian church and the Laodicean church, he, he was eloquent and persuasive. Without, with an outward form of humility and an overdose of confused doctrine, as summarized in Colossians already, what was that doctrine that Christ is just one of a long line of angelic mediators, that Christ, uh, that all matter is evil, that human wisdom is exalted, Judaism is carried over with its regulations and it, its rules, Angelic powers are revered above or equal to Christ, and there is a contempt for the physical body and then liberty to do what you want with your body anytime you want to do it. However, there can be no compromise with error in doctrine or in practice, which is which Scripture opposes. This kind of hypnotic, persuasive rhetoric is used to talk someone into something. Have you ever had somebody talk you into something that you really didn't want? I think we all have, right? Those, those, 
those people who can really put sentences together and just get you in, and then, boomo, close the deal. So this oratory is used by skeptics and false teachers to deceive and to divide. Disunity, division, discouragement are always fertile ground for deception. Paul was concerned that the gospel seed sown would not be smothered by weeds of doubt in the congregation or quarreling or people's philosophies. It becomes necessary for Christians to pull out the weeds of human intellectualism in order to protect the faith, the faith of the saints. It was Paul telling young Timothy where he warns him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as I urge you upon my departure to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, what, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So magnetic personalities, excellent logic, fluent oratory, hypnotic persuasion, fine speech might, might be all good in, in and of themselves, but they become the devil's tools when they are used by the ignorant and the skeptic and the false teacher. But I know this, when you're growing strong in your heart about truth, settled in Christ, confident about Christ and your salvation, firm in Christ, then what are you going to do next? You know what you do? You keep walking. You keep walking in Christ. So that brings me to the fourth thing after warning, which is going to take some time to develop in our passage as we go on, and that is this, walking. In other words, take what you now know and live it every day in your life. That's what we're to do. So you can never separate doctrine and what you know now from what you do, what you say what you think. It all goes together because these things are going to change you and make you different, make you more like the Lord. So what does he do? He gives an exhortative rejoicing because of their walking. Notice what it says in verse number five, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit. He says this for this reason, he was with them in the struggle of their Christian experience and that through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is so bound to these believers at Colossae and Laodicea in these congregations that he gives them a warning as though he was with them. His concern was that he was with them. But what does he say now to them? After all he has said, you know what he does? He says this, there's ground for rejoicing. Why is there ground for rejoicing? Well, look what it says in, the, in verse number five, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Why did he say that? Because the believers had not succumbed to the onslaught of error. They did not listen to the false teacher. These saints did not exchange Christ for a false teacher's worthless error. That's grounds for rejoicing. When somebody is walking in the faith, they're faithful in the faith, they're growing in their knowledge of their conversion to Christ and the faith, that these believers here were fortified in advance against the persistence of the errorists. The victory in 
a fight worth fighting is displayed. How, notice what it says, in their good discipline. In other words, their orderly faith. The picture here is a line of soldiers who have not broken rank. That means there's strength and unity. There is a a front of believers that are not moving. Throw anything at, at us as a group of believers, and we're not moving. Why? We know the truth. That's why. And then he rejoices also in their firm faith. He says, by their stability and steadfastness and firmness, it says, in the truth that produced faith. In other words, they understood the wealth and riches they had in in Jesus Christ and were unwilling to exchange a real diamond, Christ, for a substitute fake cubic zirconium. And a cubic zirconium appears like a diamond, but it is very different in its mineral structure. And a vast amount of jewelry is actually man-made in a lab. In other words, a fake diamond. We can't let anybody persuade us to believe that Jesus is anything less than the totally and comprehensively perfect God-man. There is only one image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, the Lord and only unique one. So then, knowing that, we have to keep believing in him, keep growing in your knowledge and understanding of him, keep on holding onto Christ, keep obeying him, in the good works also that he has ordained for you. So it is worth fighting for keeping firm and stable in our faith in Christ because our firmness will be another weapon for strength and victory. Unifying love is a weapon in victory, in warfare. Keeping the treasure of truth about Christ is a sharp weapon for victory in warfare and firmness in our faith is in Christ as a weapon for victory. All right, so we have our weapons to fight. Now what are we to do? We're to continually walk faithfully in Christ. And that's what he says in verse number 6. Look what it says, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, what? So walk in him. You got that? So walk in him. And the therefore signals a logical connection on what was just said and builds on it and moves it forward, that is, in view of their good discipline and stability. He is rejoicing in that they did not get duped by the false teachers. They're standing strong in truth. They have, are standing in doctrine. And when did that start? It says, just as you received. Jesus, through the transmission of truth, it has to start in real conversion. You have to know that you're really saved, that you really received this, that it's yours. But you also have to know something else, that because you received Jesus Christ and the Spirit's in you, you are changing. You are changing. God is changing you. And if you notice something else in our passage, it says, therefore, as you have received Jesus, Christ Jesus, the Lord. It's really one of the only times it's mentioned like that in Scripture because it mentions Jesus or Christ being the Messiah. Jesus is his personal name, which means Savior, and Lord is his station and supremacy as Lord. All of those are a reality to real believers. And this unique expression really is never fashioned again in in this way in the New Testament. It stresses the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ. And also, if you notice in verse number 6, it says, so walk in him. That is the first imperative in our text. That's a command. Meaning how one can 
conducts one's daily life in behavior and lifestyle. The believers are to con conduct their lives in accord with apostolic doctrine, not in accord with the enticing words of false teachers. There's no new teaching. So if you go look for something, you'll find something, but it's not new. And God has not added or taken away from the word of God. We have the full revelation of God in our hands, special revelation. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. In fact, three times in the Bible, it warns people, don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. It is dangerous to do that. So Christians are to continue in the truth as it is in Jesus and not to be turned aside by, by novelties, new things popping up, new theories popping up, and by falsehoods or by even false teachers with a slick tongue. And notice also, the sphere in which the Christian life is to be carried out, it says that we are to walk in him. Now, that is a, a term, phrase that is used often already in Colossians. It includes obedient cooperation with the truth of God's word and a constant dependence upon God. Just let me just mention to you that this phrase, in him, is so significant in the book of Colossians. It says in Colossians 1.16, in him all things were created. Verse 17, in him all things hold together. Verse 19, in him all divine fullness dwell. In chapter 2, verse 10, it then says this, in him you have been made complete. In verse number 12 or 11, in him you were circumcised, and we're going to deal with that next time. Verse 12, you were buried and raised with him. You were made alive together with him. And then in verse number 15 of chapter 2, all demonic powers have been defeated in him. So that's where we're to live. We're to live in Christ, in the sphere of Christ. This Christocentric orientation of life is now available to all Christians, and the Christian is now able and now responsible to live it. So we are not only called to live a faithful Christian walk, we are also called to have a healthy and thankful Christian walk. And if you notice in verse number seven, verse number seven, this is where he gives us four pictures he uses to modify the imperative walk. It's, it's a picture of a developing Christian life. And here's the first picture. In verse number 7 of chapter 2, it says, having been firmly rooted. That's a horticultural metaphor. It's, it's talking about a spiritual plant. That the rooting of faith meant an organic union with Christ because Christ is the life of the plant that these roots of your salvation have gone down deep and now is receiving from the soil all the spiritual nutrients vital for spiritual life and health. And what is so interesting in verse number seven is that these roots have been sent down deep and used in the passive voice. That means God is the active agent. He's the one causing this to happen in our life. So in other words, if you're really a believer, it will happen. If you are a professed believer, but 
nah, you're not concerned about anything else past that, and nothing happens in your life, there's no change in your life, then God's not causing you to grow like a plant that has deep roots in the ground. You know when a plant has deep roots and it's getting nourishment from that ground, what's going to happen to that plant? It's going to be healthy. It's going to be giving whatever that plant is. It's going to be giving fruit. It's going to be having nice leaves. It's going to be giving everything that is needed. That's the same thing with you and I, that if our roots go down deep in our salvation with Christ and we're walking in him, we will become like Christ. Ephesians uses this word rooted in a different way, but a similar metaphor. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here it comes up again. And that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There it is, this whole view of being filled up, having all you need to grow. So we have a rooted plant that is growing. That's the first metaphor, picture of the Christian developing life. And the second one is in verse 7 too. It says, having been firmly rooted, and here is, and now being built up in him, there it is in him again, that this building pictured with a firm and solid foundation, and remember this, a building of which the most important part of the structure is the foundation, indicating that the Christian life is durable and it has stability and can withstand the stresses and strains of life itself. So here is this picture again, of the believer, that they're a growing building. But what is the foundation that has been laid to give our building durability? Well, Ephesians tells us this. That Paul writes there in Ephesians 2, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. That's what we are building upon, that Christ is the binding force of the building. And Paul uses a present tense, meaning the picture is an ongoing construction project. Isn't your life that? It's an ongoing construction progress, right? Or a project. That's what a believer is. You're growing, you're growing, you're growing. You're deep, you're, you're, your roots are going deep. Your buildings become stable and strong. I, always, I often think about this, this building we're sitting in right now. 168 years ago, this building was built. This Victorian structure was built. It's a good example of a sound structure. It was not only founded when they found the church, when the Dutch Reformed Church were actually preaching the gospel, they built this church upon a spiritual foundation. And thank the Lord, 168 years later, we're still preaching the gospel. I don't know if that was happening all the time, but we are doing it today, so the Lord must be answering prayers from saints who prayed in this place many years ago. So spiritually, because it was founded upon the gospel of Christ and the authority of the word of God, we are still here. But structurally, when those who built this building not only laid the best foundation they knew about at that time, but it also sits on a vein of shale. That's why our water table is so high. It just rains a few days and the water's coming out everywhere because it got nowhere to go. And just to think about the canal that is out there that was dug by immigrants by hand and it was nothing but shale. I don't think they lived very long. 
So there are virtually very few cracks after many years in the original structure. And it's, it's, it is because the foundation was carefully laid and has been found to have endured the stresses and strains of its environment and proved to be durable and reliable. It's strong and firm. So our, our faith is not only to be rooted and growing, it is to be strong and firm, but the third metaphor in verse number seven is this. It says, and establish in your faith just as you were instructed. Established in your faith. This is a legal metaphor. The last one was a architectural metaphor. A picture. Actually, it's something that confirms or validates something. That Christians are validated in the faith in their faith, in the faith, that is the doctrines of the Christian faith, how? By their transformational change in character, in obedience, in love, in maturity, in stability. So God actually confirms to the believer themselves and to others around them that they were truly in the faith. Why? How do you know someone's truly in the faith? They're stable and mature. They're strong and firm. They're growing deep roots. That's how you know. You can't just push them over. They're too strong. They know too much. That's what we ought to, that's what we want to be. And notice the little phrase in verse number seven, just as you were instructed, meaning that they were not only taught doctrines, they were also taught how it looks to walk in those doctrines. They were taught both things. And so are we when we come to scripture. Now, just think of that for a minute. All these things that have been said so far in the text of Scripture from verse 1 to verse number 7, where would all that lead to? Where would all that lead to if we're really tracking with it correctly? How would that change us? What would it do in our life? Well, I want you to see what it does in verse number 7. Notice I'm going to read the whole passage, verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and being now built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and what? Overflowing in what? Gratitude. So here's the result. This is the result of you and I having deep roots in Christ, being strong and firm in our faith, stable and maturing in our faith, and here, this is what it leads to. It does not lead to grumbling or complaining or doubting. It leads to an overflowing fountain of thankfulness. Do you find that happening in your life? Do you find when you get up in the morning that you are overflowing with that? And overflowing is a picture of conditions that is always developing and always advancing. It is overflowing the cup. When one understands what one has in Christ, how much God has done on their behalf, along with the validation of the transformational results of life carried out in Christ, there's only one thing you could do. You can only be thankful. Thankfulness is another weapon against error. Because I know why I'm thankful. I don't, think, I don't think the word, the thought thankful can be not connected to something you're thankful for. There's got to be 
a substitute or substance to your thankfulness. So overflowing thankfulness is a validation that you are walking in spiritual health and being faithful to what you have been taught. Have you ever thought of that? But I tell you what, if you're not thankful, there's a real spiritual problem. How important is thankful and the thought of being thankful in Colossians? Well, let me just give you for, for a few passages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then it doesn't stop there. Verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then Colossians 4, verse number 2, devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So our growth is derived from God whom true thankfulness are, is ours alone to give him. And do you think that God is not pleased when his children thank him? But not just thank him where everybody knows you're thanking him. Thanking him when you're driving in your car. Thanking him when you're faced with a huge difficulty and problem. Thanking him when you get a bad report in your health, for your health. Thanking him at night. Thanking him in the morning thanking him in the afternoon that you're just a container of overflowing thankfulness. Now, do you think that would affect people? When you go into work, you think that's going to affect people? How come you're so bubbly? What are you here to be thankful for? You know people are going to say that to you. But you know what? If they see that in you, you think it's not going to open up an opportunity. Let me tell you what I'm thankful for. You know what you tell them? You tell them everything Colossians just told you. That I have a Savior who went to the cross for me, who died in my place, who rose again for me to give me eternal life. I believed in him, and he's given me his spirit, and he's made me new. That's why I'm thankful. You want to know any more about that? See, we should never forget that in any case, theology is for doxology. The truest expression of trust in a great God will always be worship. It will always be proper worship to praise God for being far greater than we could know and far more loving toward his children than we often realize. In the church of Jesus Christ, there should always be an atmosphere of thanksgiving. So when we sing praises and sing hymns, we should blow this roof off. But if you're not ready to do that, sometimes you need to get yourself ready. Because we need to walk in here, and sometimes we're down in the dumps. Sometimes life is weighing down on us, beating us down. And we come to the church, and we see other believers, and all of a sudden, 
I get lifted back up. I need to be around you. I really do. I'm, I'm, gone, I'm, I'm gone a few days not being around believers, and I'm starting to, my shoulders are start sagging. Started walking around like, like ho-hum. All the problems seem bigger than ever. And I come into the church. I go home, and I'm, I'm, I'm on cloud nine, whatever that means. Don't forget this. Discontent, discontentment, and ingratitude are often results of false teaching and a fleshly, worldly understanding of spiritual reality. So if you find yourself grumbling and moaning and groaning too often, you need to drop to your knees and you need to be reminded of what God has done for you and then be thankful. Amen? Maybe we sing that song again, Joe. So anyway, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, your patience, your patience towards us, your, your long-suffering with us. Lord, and I, I pray that these truths would not only bring rejoicing to us because we are standing firm in the faith, but also, Lord, because the result of doctrine and practice is thankfulness. And thankfulness, Lord, is a, it's a validation that we're growing healthy in truth and practice, living in the sphere of Christ, giving you praise and glory. And Lord, when, when you catch us, and we, or we catch ourselves grumbling and moaning and complaining, Lord, convict us quickly that we repent of that sin and then start being thankful again. So I pray, Lord, that our list of thankfulness would just keep getting longer and longer. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.